Suisa, editor-in-chief of the Jewish Journal. Please visit us at jewishjournal.com. And welcome to my podcast. Our sponsor this week is Yeshiva University's Wurzweiler School of Social Work. And you can learn more about their Master of Social Work program at wurz.yu.ed. Our guest today is Eve Robbins. Welcome, Eve. Thank you. I'm honored to be here. Before we get started, I would like to again welcome our sponsor this week, Yeshiva University's Wurzweiler School of Social Work. Support your community as a fulfilling career. Yeshiva University now offers an online Master of Social Work degree program. Apply now and obtain a 10% degree completion scholarship. They also offer both full-time and flexible part-time options to fit your busy schedule. Do you have a bachelor's in social work from a CSWE-accredited university? If so, you can apply to Advanced Standing, which allows you to start the program in year two. Learn more today at wurz.yu.ed. And the more I read about this program, I got to tell you, it is really on the cutting edge, and that's why I'm endorsing it. Okay, welcome to my podcast, Eve Robbins. Welcome, Eve. Thank you. I'm so happy to be here. Well, you got your bachelor's in psychology at the University of Cincinnati, did graduate work in group and interpersonal communication, and then a master's in sacred music, rabbinic studies at the Academy for Jewish Religion, and all kinds of other stuff. And you just wrote this extraordinary new book called Spiritual (laughs) Surgery, A Journey of Healing Mind, Body, and Spirit. Yeah, <laughs> it's been quite alive. <laughs> you know, it, it, it's interesting. The word healing yes. really got my attention. Yes. And I said, I have to have her on because it seems that everywhere I go these days, we hear about depression, um, trauma, kids being addicted to their smartphones, uh, loneliness. It's just so much pain. It's not the kind of pain that... Uh, you know, where bombs fall on us and that kind of pain. It's very much of a psychic, spiritual pain where there's emptiness inside. And this is is what your book deals with. It does. And it really, it focuses on the Mishkan. And the Mishkan, which is the traveling sanctuary, you know, in the desert. Mm -hmm. Uh, As an artist, I realized that my roots had to go back somewhere. And I, I turned to Torah, and when I turned to Torah, I saw something that I, I actually had never understood, that the very first project that the Israelites take on after leaving Egypt is this Mishkan. And the way I perceived it was that it was a gift for healing their PTSD. I mean, Because they were traumatized. They were traumatized. They were... 400 years of slavery, can you imagine what that creates both within a person and within a community? The kind of pain and suffering. Some of it was physical. Some of it was emotional. They watched their children die. They watched their parents abuse. They, they experienced that themselves. So my feeling was that the purpose of the Mishkan, and it has multiple purposes. You know, there are a lot of rabbis and there's a lot of commentary. And it's very mixed as what the purpose of the Mishkan was. 
But somehow when I, I reread it, I said to myself, you know, these people walked out of a life of pain and suffering, and something had to heal them. And it wasn't just going to the land. There needed to be some preparation. You know what's interesting? It's uh, we each have our own lens. Yeah. And one thing I love about Torah is that we yeah. come to the same stories yeah. in the Torah with Every our own year, lens. Right? With our year own after, lens. And, year, and it's year after year, right? The stories is the same year right. after year. You, so yes. a philosopher will we'll have a different take on the Mishkan. Yes. I remember once there was this great author, and he has a very storytelling, kind of screenwriting uh, take on on the stories of the Bible. And then you, you studied psychology. So it makes sense that you would look at the psychic pain and that kind of an angle. Yeah. yeah talk, to, talk to me more <laughs> about that. And w when did you have that revelation? Oh, interesting question. Um, when I became what I would call a designer, an artist, it was a result of giving birth. When I gave birth to my first child, it was the most powerful experience I, I, in my life. And what I, what I felt at that moment was a connection to the divine. It was like, oh, wow, I'm like a sister to this brother. <laughs> and I can tell you as a father, yeah. it's, there's no moment in life. Right. Like that moment. Right. There's n nothing compares to it. So nothing. Nothing. But imagine when it literally comes out of right. you. Wow. It's, it's like you're torn open, mm -hmm. right? And something major comes into the world, and it's life. And that's what God does. It's so interesting because uh, so both sides of you, yes. sort of the, the, the psychology student, uh -huh. uh, and your creative arts, because you are also an artist yes. with textiles. Yes. So they both came together with the Mishkan in a way. Oh, totally. I mean, if you look at the cover, right. this is my work. You right. Know? So you have the trauma of 40 years in the desert and then the, the creativity of building the Mishkan, right? Yeah, yeah. It, for me, I call it suturing their wounds. Mm -hmm. That's why I call it spiritual surgery. I only had one p person who was sort of offended and said, surgery? You want to think about surgery? It's so horrible. I said, you know what? Surgery does some important things. And on a spiritual level, it sutures the wounds, the mm -hmm. deep places in people, you know, that exist. We all have our own pain and we all have our own suffering. And... You know, we can't compare one to the other. It's one of the most beautiful, for me, understandings of trauma. It's also honest, Eve. It's honest. It I, says, you know, I have a wound. Yes. And, you know, I need, I need surgery. And there might be a scar, and, and that's okay. Mm -hmm. But there's, it's kind of the opposite of denial. Yes. Is but, but here's the thing for me as a child of Holocaust survivors. Okay, I'm a second generation. I live with people who really suffered, right? Who were deprived. I live with a mother who was in grief pretty much all her life because she was the only survivor in her family. So she had the survivor guilt. And I had a dad who was like a hero. I didn't discover that too much later because my parents wouldn't share their stories. But what I grew up with was an understanding that whatever I was experiencing could never reach, right? Could never meet the trauma level that they had. So I had to really deny and uh, suppress. Mm. 
And that, that's a very common feature of second-generation Jews, is somehow you can't accept your pain. Y you can't deal with it because it's, you know, it's nothing. It should be nothing. It's like... But when you saw the pain of your ancestors in the desert, yes. somehow you were able to relate to that pain. Yes. It was a, it was a strange um, kind of epiphany because uh, having read... Torah stories year after year. Somehow it never really, it didn't reach me, but it did in that moment. And I, I was just struck at what these people must have felt like after all these years. And what they needed was healing. And so, you know, for me, I felt it was a gift from God. I mean, there are multiple reasons why this Mishkan was important. Part of it was for God, because mm -hmm. the experience at Sinai was so traumatic. Talk about another trauma, right? Mm -hmm. What we read is that the people were so terrified, they said to Moses, you go talk to that God because if we continue to talk to this God or hear this God, we're going to die. Right. So after all the suffering... They were so fragile. They were so fragile. And so what I understood at that moment was that the Mishkan was also a purpose for God. It was, and that's what I've learned my whole life. You know, it was a way of honoring God. It was a way of thanking God. It was creating a holy presence for the divine. I never heard healing. Never, that, you know? So let's just say I'm a kid. I don't know. I'm 15 years old. I'm yeah. lonely. I'm depressed. I spend half of my life on, on Facebook and, right. and Instagram. <laughs> yeah. Uh, feel lonely. And, you know, how does this story of the Mishkan bring healing into my life? Oh, it's a good question, because for teenagers, it's a little harder. Uh, I do a lot of bar and bat mitzvah training. And so I work with kids who are, you know, sort of pre-adolescent, and they do suffer. Uh, and a lot of my work is in the Persian community, interestingly. And well, we did a cover story on that. I, yeah, I know, oh. I know you did. Yeah. And I work with a lot of these kids. And what's interesting is I have great awe for what goes on in that community because there's still this incredible family value. Mm -hmm. I mean, my kids every Shabbos know that they're going to be with their family, which is astounding because for other Jews who are more assimilated, that attachment doesn't occur. But when I work with kids and we get into their stories, right, their, their pasha, for, for their bar bat mitzvah, that's what I want to do. I want to find a connection. I want to find a way that they can see this can impact their life. Uh, so far, I haven't had a kid who has had to deal with this story. But there's something about having community, sharing a project. That's the other thing. It's Correct. It's about, about the sharing. The Mishkan was a right. shared project. And it's important to have that kind of uh, mental understanding that actually doing things with other people instead of being adversaries. Well, you know, my my kids, uh, bar mitzvah, one of them. Yeah. <laughs> I remember uh, in his uh, drash, he spoke about that and he how did. during the Mishkan, everybody brought their unique gifts. Yes, and it was something that they they took because you know when they leave Egypt. And we're told about this in Breshit when God speaks to Abraham. You know, we get this foreshadowing. God says to Abraham, you know, your people are going to suffer, but then they're going to leave with all these goodies. Mm -hmm. And they do. Mm -hmm. You know, some people say it's back pay, you know, for being slaves. 
But others feel like it's preparation because by, by taking the gold and the silver and the copper and the threads and the, and the clothing, they now have the tools when mm. they travel into the desert. So it's not reparations, it's preparation. That's what I believe. Mm-hmm. Uh, most people talk about it as reparations. Right. But Re- reparation uh, reinforces the sense of victimhood. Yeah. Whereas preparation is yeah. more empowering. So that's... Yes. That's yes. your angle. Yes, it's about the future. So, so the, the the whole Mishkan story, which is one of the defining stories of the Jewish uh, Jewish history, yeah, is you see it as a healing force. Yes. Oh, very much so. And and it's part of a process. Let's face it. You know, one generation doesn't get it because they commit a sin, right? They build the calf, and then when they are finally in front of the land, what do they do? They send scouts, and the scouts come back terrified and, and, and fal- with falsehoods. And so they don't meet the task. But you know what? It takes time. It, it, it is a cellular process, and it happens over generations. I mean, I can tell you from ha- being a second generation and having children and even a grandson that these kinds of traumas get passed. They get passed on. And so does healing, you know? Mm -hmm. What I call my work now um, at my new website, which is very exciting for me because I worked hard to... What's the site? Expandedspirit.org. So it's all about expansion. Mm -hmm. It's it's about growing your soul and your spirit because the truth is as we get older, physically, we're going to diminish. We're going to face loss, pain, aches suffering i mean it gets worse it gets worse right but what can get better you know judaism teaches we're body and soul so you know you started with this question about psycho-spiritual healing it begins with the soul and the spirit because you can't always heal the body i i know this from living with a man who's been in pain for 15 years and has had one medical challenge after another it's so physical, and sometimes we joke together because he's in pain, and sometimes I suffer. And I think that that concept of the difference between pain and suffering is really important. I do believe the slaves suffered, and they, were in pa- they had been in pain, but they were suffering. And so how do you feed the soul? How do you heal the soul? You know, for me, it's, it's music, it's art, it's color, it's texture, it's sharing with other people, it's finding your bliss. You know, what's one thing that really interests me is I've, I've dealt a lot with therapists, psychologists, and uh, people who've been in therapy for a long time, and I'm not, a, I'm not an expert. But what's in- so interesting about your book and what we're talking about today is the idea that we go back 3,000 years. Yeah. <laughs> and what I ha- one of the things I found, and again, I'm not an expert, but I found that sometimes when you talk about your own life, yeah. it can get so close. It's like plutonium. <laughs> it, it gets so close. It's explosive. Yeah. And it's yeah. too much sometimes. It's like, you know, we're so <laughs> fragile that it can backfire. The more I talk about your own thing, it, it, it creates a certain obsession with the self and you, you sort of wallow in the victimhood, whether the story was a mother and a father and a parent, uh, any kind of trauma that we experience. I'm not saying it's not a good thing to do that. What I'm saying is I'm intrigued by the idea of going all the way back yeah. to the story of our people 3,000 years ago, which is so much less threatening Yes. To yeah. look at that, because yeah. I can look yeah. at it without any baggage. 
Right. And I, and I could see yeah. here are my ancestors. They were traumatized. And then they had this project. Yeah. What can I learn from it? Yes. How can I grow from it? I mean, really, we're talking about Torah therapy here, isn't it? It is. It's Torah therapy. It's, <laughs> that's a fabulous way to describe it. I feel like that's what I'm doing when I teach Torah. And it's also about going inside. You know, Torah can be an intellectual process. But what we're talking about is much more of an inner process, which is why spiritual practice is so important. You know, meditation, mindfulness, doing this inner journey, which is what I always include when I teach Torah. It's about going inside. And, you know, the word Shema, which means listen, if you change the word Yisrael, and it's not a narcissistic thing, but if you change it to your own word, you know, like my name is Chava, if I say Shema Chava, mm. Adonai mm. Eloheinu, Adonai Echad, I'm talking to me. And sometimes we have to talk to ourselves mm-hmm. and have an inner journey. And I feel like the spiritual journey that that this book really confronts is helping us. In in fact, there's a prayer and a meditation at the end of the book, which is really about going inward. It's about acknowledging uh, the skills, the talents, the possibility, the options, the growth that one can experience. So sometimes ruminating on what you've been through and doing it in a directed way will give you insight. It will give you a way to grow and move forward. If all you're going to do is use it as an excuse, as an excuse to be who you are, then nothing changes. If you use it as a, as a pathway to healing, to better understanding, to expanding who you are, to, to finding those things out there you know, outside of yourself sometimes, whether it's people, whether it's projects, whether it's new learning, whether it's exposing yourself to the to the colors of the world and the sounds of the world. I mean, it's in the tiny little things that we experience, which is what I've had to actually do as a caregiver. I've had to find little things that give me moments, right, of a sense of wholeness and pleasure and you know, I like to help people find that. Yeah, it's what's interesting also is that you, you don't just settle for talk therapy. Mm. It's not just about words. It's about actually doing things. I, I want to read a few lines from your prayer on page 179 from your book, Spiritual Surgery. May each human being find their, their path, the holy expression of the divine spark. May each human being be able to open a channel to offer what is in their heart. May each human being find the generosity, openness, and desire to share freely. May each human being create in their life, their work, and their relationships the fulfillment of their soul's desire. Hmm. This helps, right? I mean, Absolutely. You know, you, what, what these people did, they gave. They gave so much. <laughs> Moses finally said, stop, I got plenty. But some people could give their talent. Some people could just give from their heart and soul. Some people just gave support. Some people were willing to learn new skills. Uh, it, 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 was a, it was a project of love and giving. And everybody felt needed, correct? Yes. 
every person felt needed. And we all, you know, we all want to be needed. I, it's, for me, it's very sad. Uh, in our culture, people are more concerned sometimes about what they get mm -hmm. than what they give. Mm -hmm. And, you know, well, I've, I've I, I'm going to turn that on you. I'm going to okay. turn the table on you on that <laughs> okay. because I think all too often uh, we don't know how to receive. That's true, because too. Because re yeah. re receiving, sometimes, you know, there's a risk involved yes. with receiving. And you feel maybe you have to owe something back or mm -hmm. the real joy is in giving. Yes. So when you receive, you're giving somebody else the joy of giving. You're making them feel needed. Yes. And the great thing about the story in the Mishkan is everybody knew not just how to give, but also how to receive. Yes. And if somebody's depressed, they need healing, you know, they usually feel powerless and they feel not needed. They feel, uh, they feel meaningless. I mean, people who are depressed, uh, it, it certainly clinically, it's even worse. They feel like they don't belong here anymore, and they want to commit suicide. But when you are depressed, you feel meaningless. You feel like you have no purpose. Mm -hmm. You feel you count. And the people who created this Mishkan, they discovered they counted. They mattered. Everything they did was not only a learning experience and a shared experience and an expansive experience, but they, they were important. And in many ways, they began the collective Jewish story. Yes, they that did. That we continue today. Yeah. Is the is that yeah. part of your therapy too? Is the fact that you're part of some bigger story that you're continuing, and there's some so much meaning in that? Well, I have felt it, you know, from the moment of my birth, because my parents' story is personal, but it's bigger than them. You know, the Holocaust impacted so many people. And it was the end result of so much anti-Semitism that had lasted for hundreds and hundreds of years. It somehow made that even possible. Did but your parents keep their faith after the Holocaust? It was a mixed bag. My mother, who had this incredible depression and uh, felt very guilty, I think, because she survived and her parents died. Was she angry at God? No. No, my mother became very devotional. And she became more of the Orthodox Jew. She, mm -hmm. You know, we had kashrut in the house. Mm -hmm. My father, on the other hand, he was the man of the world, and he would even eat treif. Mm -hmm. For him, those things weren't important, but mm -hmm. he, he was a very gifted man. Was he a survivor, too? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. My, my Did he have anger towards God or cynicism? I, there may have been a little bit, but mm -hmm. he was such a good and humble person, and he actually saved the family. And I didn't know way? this. I didn't know this till years later when I read my uncle's memoir. Um, my dad was incredibly talented, so he could fix anything, and he was going to become a textile engineer, and the war broke out. But somehow the Nazis discovered that he could do things. He could fix things. So he actually worked for them. He told me once, he said, don't tell anybody, but I'm probably one of the few people that may have gotten a little money from the Nazis. I said, what? He said, nah, it wasn't much. I got food, occasionally a dollar here. What did he make? Uh, he fixed machinery, decoding machines. Mm. Wow. Uh, that was not his training, but he was very gifted with his hands, and I feel like I inherited some of that. And he was also a singer. His father was, um, he was like a baltafila. Mm. He had a shul, and my dad would sing in the choir. Which country was this? 
a Poland mm-hmm. in Lublin, mm-hmm. and my mother was from Radom. So did your father's family perish? Most of them. Wow. His mother survived, and his two brothers survived, and my mother lost everybody. Mm. So when they came, I was born in Sweden. I was one of the first babies born in this community of people who, you know, talk about healing. My mother and my grandmother were taken with a number of women, and because their last name was Adler, they were first on the list. They were taken to Stockholm to be healed. Mm. And there was some trade with the Germans. I don't know what the Germans got, but these women were saved. And my father, who was in Dachau, found her finally after the liberation. And then they had me, which I'm sure was an utter miracle. My mother probably weighed about 80 pounds and hadn't had a period, you know, in years. So it was a miracle, right, that I was born. But what I understood in my home was this mixed bag of being very devoted to God and also the pain and the suffering. And so I grew up being told, and I don't want to say verbally, but I think non-verbally, to keep a low profile. Mm. I grew up as a female in that community, as a child of Holocaust survivors who never felt safe in the world anymore and hated non-Jews because they brought on you know this reality, to keep a low profile. So I couldn't sing. I couldn't really study. I couldn't be anything that potentially, obviously, somehow with the love of my husband and his support, I found a new pathway. But, you know, 20 years later, I started a pathway of healing. It it, it feels like everything happened for a reason. Yeah, things are beshared, like today, (laughs) as you said, you know, (laughs) there was a cancellation and here I am. (laughs) You know, it it just feels that, you know, the the trauma and then your your father's gifts of working with his hands and singing, which you've picked up. I I had, you know, that was my natural talent, but it was suppressed. You're learning psychology and then learning Torah. You seem to be putting it all together now. Yes, it is. It feels like it's all coming together as one. Which is, is this why you're on earth, do you think? Do you think you have a calling right now? I feel like I have a calling. Um, it's to be there and be empathic and to support people. The thing that I love most doing, I have to tell you, is uh, officiating at a funeral. I love walking people through their grief and their pain. I love guiding bar and bat mitzvah students so they can stand on the bima and feel confident and have learned Torah and speak about it. I love guiding women in particular to find their bliss and to keep expanding because I feel like that's what I keep doing despite, you know, getting older. Uh, and, and yet you, you, you settled on the Mishkan for your book, which is, you know, it's kind of fascinating. <laughs> it was a great symbol. It was a symbol of everything, and I didn't even realize it because my thesis was going to be on something totally different, and it was one of those beshert moments when a friend of mine who was putting um, a conference together about how we move our tradition, she said, I want you to talk about your art. And I said, I do my art. I don't usually talk about it. She said, I don't care. you got to come. So all of a sudden I panicked, as I do when I approach something new, and I said, i got to go to the Torah. And there it was, the Mishkan. Of course. We have such a need to create <laughs> and build things, don't we? Yes. I mean, the, the joy that you get, it's godly because the ultimate 
godly act is it's creation. creation. It's all about and, creating. You know, if I, if I write a column, I, I see a blank page three hours later, there's something there. Yes, you created. It wasn't created. there three hours earlier. That's right. And you when created. My, I say that to my, my kids. They're totally into art. There's a blank canvas, and then two days later, it's this extraordinary painting. Of course, I'm totally biased. But there's a <laughs> joy you get. There is so creating, much And they've created, they built yes. the Mishkan. There is so much fulfillment in tapping into some kind of skill or talent or just love mm -hmm. and seeing it actualized. After I wrote that, I sat down to write something else. And I have to tell you that writing for me was terrifying. It took me six months to sit down to do my thesis. And I knew if I didn't do it, I wouldn't graduate because I was traumatized as a child. When I was in sixth grade, I had a teacher who stood me up in front of everybody and literally put me down, told me how insecure I was and I would amount to nothing. And that trauma sat inside of me until one day when I was flying home from visiting my father when he was in the ER, I got in touch with why I was afraid to write. I was afraid to write because I had been told that I couldn't do it. And what made it possible, believe it or not, was I went out and I bought a candle. And I sat down at my desk. I lit the candle. I said a prayer. And I, all of a sudden, it was like this flame was inside of me. And it, it helped to give me motivation and confidence That's to, beautiful. to face the page. Just, just the candle. The candle. Yes. I, I, I want to read uh, from something in your book, page 94. The arc seem to serve multiple purposes and have deep symbolic meaning, practical and spiritual. Rabbi Judah Halevi, poet and philosopher of the Middle Ages, described it as the heart of the Mishkan. Rashi described it as a chest, like those in France for storing jewels, very fitting since Torah is a most precious jewel. For Philo, like creation itself, the ark represented both the visible corporeal, physical, sensory world, as well as that of which is invisible, the world of the intellect. It's interesting. You looked at the, the duality of the Mishkan. Oh, I did. I broke down every single thing that was in that tent. But see, the basic, uh, I don't want to say conflict, but difference of opinion is focusing on the ark or focusing on the altar. Mm -hmm. So the altar was a place of offering. It was mm -hmm. a healing for the people because when they gave, they didn't have prayers, they didn't have the words that we do now, but they knew that when they killed that animal mm -hmm. and they brought it to the priest and the smoke went to the heavens, it was it was this beautiful scent. But then there was the ark with the Torah and the Keruvim above it. See, one of the most impl important places in the Holy of Holies was this triangle between the Keruvim and the top of the ark. It, this triangle, it was negative space. And God says, this is where I will meet them. It became this beautiful understanding for me that sometimes it's in the non-words, it's in the inner journey, it's the place of the heart, of the soul, that we actually meet God. And it's an incredible teaching. 
And also, I think one of the great, greatest things that happened to Judaism is when we transitioned from sacrificing animals yes. to sacrificing the animal inside of us, yes. our yeah. appetites, yeah. which can destroy <laughs> us. So, oh, very that's a very interesting concept, you know, because the rabbis took the sacrificial offerings, they turned them into prayers. So instead of offering on the flame of the altar, it's on the flame of the heart, mm -hmm. but it's through the words. This is what we do now. And that was the basis for how they came up with a new Judaism, because the truth is that Judaism could have died when that temple was destroyed because the Mishkan evolves into the temple. Mm -hmm. And the temple is where the ritual was enacted. Right. When the second temple is destroyed, everything... We had to figure it out. We had to figure it out. It's like, where do, what are we going to do now? Everything was just gone. Talk about trauma. And we as Jews do what we're talking about. It was a healing process. It was finding and discovering that in the words of Torah... In the words of our prayers, we can keep this alive through teaching, through study, through prayer, through meditation, through music. It's we so ironic, you know, Eve, because um, I think sometimes too much in the Jewish community, we put too much emphasis on buildings. Yes, absolutely. And every synagogue's <laughs> yeah. got a building fund. There's a yeah. drama. There's yeah. a, you know, there's, there's, yeah. there's an ego. The buildings and and yeah. and I've seen it over and over again in every community. I'm not criticizing it, yeah. just saying it's part of it. And there's a yetzerara there. Yes, you know the appeal yeah. of the hardware, and and yet what really matters is what's inside the building. The software. You know, the software. <laughs> yeah. Right. And, and yet you've taken this physical yeah. um, idea of building the mishkan and you've brought spirituality to the physical, and yet. The physical still plays a role because if you're traumatized and if you're depressed, there's still physical. When you talk about your creativity, when your hands and textiles, that's not just an idea. That's real. Your hands are really creating things. Yes. See what I'm saying? So there's a duality here. Yes. But the other thing is the Mishkan for me represents sanctuary. And we all need a sanctuary. Mm. We all need a physical mm -hmm. environment. You know, there is a part of me that's a designer, and I went to interior design school. <laughs> and What have it, you not done? Uh, what, I don't make much <laughs> money. <laughs> I think that's, uh, okay. the, that's like the place uh, I can't seem to accomplish much. But when it comes to creativity and to really wanting to share and help heal, whether it's my family or the people I serve or my husband, um, we need environments mm -hmm. that feel comfortable, yes. that feel loving and soft, and uh, we all need that. Mm -hmm. So it is physical, and but it's a physical that represents soul and spirit, right? So it's both inside and outside, and we are body and spirit. Judaism right. tells us that. Right, and, and, and we're, we're threatened because so much of the environment mitigates against this this holiness, when you drive and see billboards, when you open up uh, television and you get on social media, what have you. I mean, so much of that, I don't want to exaggerate it, but it can be toxic. It is toxic. I don't think you're exaggerating. We live in a word of toxicity. There's no question. And so we have to work really hard to define our own 
mini Mishkan. And the language has become so toxic. Yes. Yeah, well, look, uh, you know, our political environment has been, from my perspective, so destructive. Uh, it's it's very sad. Uh, oh, our, that's a whole that's other a whole, podcast. Uh, right. That's another podcast. But you're right. You're right, I think, in the sense that uh, politics has uh, dominated our consciousness to, uh, I think, for me, way too much. And we... It poisons us without us realizing it sometimes, and it's just had all kinds of negative repercussions. Not that politics is not important, but it doesn't deserve to dominate my consciousness. It doesn't deserve to destroy my Shabbat table. It right. doesn't deserve to uh, harm my, my friendships and my dear relationships and so forth. And sometimes right. unwittingly we've allowed it to. Yeah, which is why the rituals and the study and having Torah at the center you know, of our world as a reminder, you know, Shabbat is something else that became very real because of the Mishkan. In what way? Well, it's so interesting, and this is inspired by one of my teachers, that when, when they get in the desert for the first time, the first thing they tap into is their hunger, right? And, and they say to Moses, did you bring us out here to die? <laughs> so God, in God's generosity, gives us manna. And, but in the receiving of the mana, God says, on the sixth day, you will take an extra portion because you're not going to go out and get it on the seventh. And that's as much as we know. But it's not until the Mishkan, when people are directed to do work, because this is a new kind of work. When they were slaves, the work never stopped. But now with this new work, this new project, it's six days and one day off. Mm. It's six days and one day off. So they not only get to heal the spirit, they get to heal the body, because mm. the body needs healing too. So Shabbos really, I, for, from my point of view, becomes reinforced and concretized as a result of the Mishkan, because we, the Torah tells us, if you want to buy the order, the Torah tells us to create the Mishkan Later, we get the Ten Commandments, which is when it says, you know, honor this day and have a Shabbat. So it is the Mishkan, from my point of view, that makes Shabbos real for these people mm -hmm. so that they can get it, so they can understand it, right? Absolutely. So, I mean, for somebody who's out of work, Shabbat <laughs> is not the same thing. I mean, people forget that sometimes, That's you know, true. that uh, it's a seven day experience. And to really feel the Shabbat experience, you really need to be productive during those six other days, and I think sometimes part of the depression yeah. is people do not feel productive yes. or needed, and then when Shabbat happens, you... you yeah, so what? So, so what? Yeah, yeah, and that's why, as we talked about before, feeling productive, feeling meaningful, it's not about importance as much as it's meaning. It's about meaning. You know, we're taught in Talmud that the most important thing we can leave behind, right, when we leave this world is our name. It's not all the wealth. It's not our homes. It's not all the stuff we've collected. And some of us are collectors. I am too. But when we leave this world, it's what we've, it's what we've done. It's how we've related to people, that sense of meaning and values that we've shared in the world. It's the good name. You know, and you can see creativity in relationships as oh, well. Yeah. Because, you know, this idea of creativity 
that's so powerful that can make us feel needed, useful, and bring meaning to our lives could be expanded in so many different ways. I mean, if I I have relationships for me, I have to work at them. Yes. I have to nurture (laughs) them. I have to remember to call on a birthday. I have to remember to make those calls. There's... I mean, you yeah. we're creating there yeah. too, right? So oh, yeah. in addition to how powerful creating a piece of art is, in your case, with textile, or whether it's a job and you create something meaningful, it could be producing a podcast like Shani is doing right now. Yes. You know, she's creating. Absolutely. I and mean, she's, y- she's that third party <laughs> who's, who's really important. And, you know, triangles are really important. They have a, a balance point. And the more you create the more you'll be able to really internalize the greatest gift that God ever gave to humanity, which is Shabbat. Yeah. Because when Shabbat kicks in tonight, you know, (laughs) it's like the more I've created this week, the more I'll feel. By the way, this is the first time I've ever said this. Really? I like to repeat myself too often. (laughs) But it never struck me that just all the work we do during the week is so connected to how we relate to the Shabbat. Because if I've done... Somebody's done nothing all week and they're depressed and Shabbat kicks in and you get, it's not the same thing. It's not the same for them, which is really sad because, you know, irrespective of what it means personally on on the bigger, on the grander scale, you know, Shabbat, we get an extra soul. Shabbos is also a healing. And my husband taught me something really beautiful. And that's when we light two candles, they become gateways. Mm. It's a gateway. And when we wave our hand three, three times, we are waving for mind, for body, and spirit healing. Mm. We are gathering together that, that, that neach rechoach, that beautiful spirit, and that incredible gift. It's a gift of an extra spirit. And Did our people feel that when they were building the Mishkan? Oh, I hope so. I don't know that they did, but they gave um, they gave so honestly and openly that I have a feeling there must have been something, right, mm-hmm. that motivated them. They must have been feeling something positive. Right, but this was before <laughs> the Ten Commandments. This is before the Ten Commandments. Right. See, this is one of the interesting divisions between the Mishkan and why, according to the rabbis, its purpose, if it's too two ways to look at it. Some of the rabbis, like Rashi, say, ah, the Mishkan, it was just to heal the sin. Mm. They committed a sin. They, they, they wanted this golden calf, so they had to, it was teshuva. Mm-hmm. It was teshuva. And then you go to the Ramban, and he says, uh-uh, no, 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 no. This was long before, because this was about a soul gift, this was a soul gift. This mm. was a gift for God. This had nothing to do with the sin. So mm. you have this division in the commentary, like the altar and the ark, that its purpose was for the sin. Its purpose was, no, no, it was, it was for, for God. It was for their relationship. Because here's my thought, is that when the people meet God for the first time at Sinai, I call it a first date gone bad. It's a disaster. <laughs> it is. And they reject God. I say, go away. <laughs> we don't want to hear you. It's too much for it's us. It's too much for yeah. us. 
So my sense is, well, you know what? God did something very interesting. It's a little tsum. It's a little contraction. Mm. Got a little wiser. The first psychologist is God, because God understands, you know what? I need to provide something a little more human. I need to. I need them to to create and and have something they can relate to that's mm. small. So interesting. God contracted, and we, you know, we hear about this cold mama daka, the tiny tiny voice. Well, to me, that's what this reflected. The powerful booming sound at Sinai was way too much. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we've been around people like that, right? Doesn't work. Doesn't work. I know. A little bit of softer, silent, human scale, to me, is part of... So God did a little Tsim Tsum, too. So, I, you know, the Mishkan has so many ways to be viewed and seen in terms of who wanted it, why it was necessary... What was its purpose? I, that's what I wanted to explore. But I do believe it, it, that healing is something we all need to go through. And quite honestly, the whole calendar, the Jewish calendar, on some level is about healing. We go from, you know, from one holiday to another. They all have different purposes. They all have a different pathway. But we become more whole, right, when we go through them. That should be your next book. Well, my the book, is healing. <laughs> the, the, the wholeness that yeah. we create, I wrote a memoir, and that's the one I want to get out. I wrote um, an inspirational memoir and it, because it's about healing. It's about growing. The idea of using a 12-month calendar as a guide, as a roadmap to healing, yes. just, I don't know, maybe it's already written and I haven't seen it, but you know, that sounds really interesting to there me. There are a lot of people who write about it or mm-hmm. they talk about the different purposes of the holidays, but it is a road it is a roadmap to healing. And, you know, Rafa mm-hmm. to heal. It also, when you change the last letter of Rafa, it's about desisting. It, it, it's about stepping back because we hear harpudu de'u, we need to stop for a moment. We need to pull back. It's in one of the Psalms, which is, I think it's 46. Uh, we need to give space in our lives for holiness, for Kedusha. This project was a project of holiness, of Kedusha. Mm-hmm. Relationships, right? What is a marriage called? Kedusha. So- Right. The it's, deepest form of friendship. It's the deepest form of friendship. And Adam mm-hmm. and Eve, right, Who uh, they they knew each other. That's the word, da'at. They mm-hmm. knew each other. They knew each other so well because they connected on a deep, deep, intimate level. And so whether it's relationships, whether it's your work, because I feel whatever I do, I've got to bring holiness to it. I have to bring meaning and hopefully purpose, you know, for the people that I work with, whether it's sitting with myself to write something like this or to take care of my husband when he is in pain or suffering. Who or, have you read, Eve, uh, in, in your life? Uh, I'm especially intrigued by the idea of uh, a rabbinic expert, a Torah expert who also deals with psychology and therapy and blends the two worlds have you come across somebody like that, a book or something? And it seems to me that there would be a really powerful combination, uh, psychology you know, and Torah. 
There is. There's a lot of people who are writing about Torah, and they do bring their um, emotional, spiritual self to its understanding. And I apologize, names escape. We had one, Levi Meyer, who passed away a few oh, years Levy ago. Oh, was, Levi, he was an unbelievable person. You yeah. know, in those days, I would go to uh, Cedars mm-hmm. when he would give his Torah talk. Mm-hmm. It was once a week, I think Thursdays at lunch hour. And he had real knowledge in psychology. Oh and I remember was... I've been reading some of his books lately, yes, and he really yes. tried to, to combine both. What, what, you, what you've done is a little different. You've taken a story uh-huh. of just the building of the Mishkan, and you've just like dissected it on, from so many different angles, which is sort of it's interesting, and it's different, I feel. It, it, it's different because it's taking something that happened, it's giving it a different perspective, a different understanding, and a way, hopefully, f- like you, to find a way to relate to it with new eyes. You know, Torah can be seen in thousands, millions of... 70 faces. Yay, 70 faces, exactly. And it's, it's, it's beyond 70, 70 times 70 times 70. Uh, and it continues. You well, know. it's it's each of us. Each of us brings what our perspective and a new new eyes to look at it differently. And uh, I wanted I wanted to share a way to look at the Mishkan because I found a connection to it that I never expected. Do, do you also see your life itself as a Mishkan and our lives as a Mishkan? Like we're we're building in the same way that we're building a life. Like we're building our own little Mishkan. Do you ever see it that way? Oh, too? absolutely. Mm-hmm. I feel like a work of art. <laughs> mm-hmm. You know, I, I, and I, you can't do it yourself. Like, and you have to have people bring their own unique gifts into your life. Well, here's how I explain it. As I spoke about it in my memoir, we are all angels for each other. You're my angel today. Totally unexpected, mm-hmm. you know. And all, and it was a gift that you give me. So we all are angels for each other. People walk in and out of my life. They touch me. They teach me. Sometimes it's not even nice. It can be nasty or cruel. And I have to find a kernel in there of, you know, in the darkness. Mm-hmm. What am I supposed to learn from that? Mm-hmm. Our lives are we're, we're projects that continually, that's why I call my work Expanded Spirit. It's just continual. And I need other people. They need me. And so, you know, my memoir is called Alchemy of Darkness because mm. I feel like an alchemist for myself. But we are angels for each other. So if I, in my writing, can give people a gift to see something in a different way that might enhance their lives, I mean, you know, thank God. What, what a wonderful what a wonderful thing to to accomplish, and and to know that. So I um, I just feel that serving others is important for me, but I know that other people serve me in ways that I don't even I'm not even aware of. Sometimes, you know, I, sometimes we don't know till much later in our lives that there was somebody that we touched. You don't know, David, whether there was somebody when you wrote something or you did a podcast and it really changed their life because they may not tell you. Hmm. You probably change a lot of people's lives with what's available in the journal and what you do in these conversations. 
you just may you never, never know. know. You never know. Never you hear know. a line, you hear a word, you hear an idea. I was at, uh, was at a place this week, and um, it was a museum, and somebody brought up the word struggle. Uh-huh. And I, I don't know why, I've just been meditating on that word. Really? It was, it was opportunity. Uh-huh. And they said, yeah. I, I won't name the person, but uh-huh. opportunity they said, you know, you have to add the word struggle. Oh, yeah. Struggle and opportunity. And it just, that made so much sense to me. Well, of course, David, what are we called? Yisrael. Right. Right. You know, the str- Jacob's story is so powerful because he struggled and it transformed him. The whole idea right? transforms us because it gives meaning to the pain yes. and to the challenges and the obstacles that yeah. life has to throw our way. Yes. And there's this whole force of gravity in America right now that's almost anti-struggle, which is I need a safe space and I'm, you're giving me microaggression <laughs> and there's a trigger warning. It's almost the opposite of struggle because we're looking for just comfort, zero risk. And just zero struggle, and you know we were—it's it, fraying. Do you think? Well, you said a magic word, gravity. So I'm going to give you a different perspective. I, I used it in my memoir, and that's Jewish gravity. It's the opposite. What is Jewish gravity? It's going upwards. It's not coming down. Wow. It's being nice. down and going up. Nice. I've never heard that before. That was Steve. That's terrific. <laughs> wow. <laughs> Holy gravity goes up. Yes. Wow. Jewish gravity for me is about elevation. Mm-hmm. Okay. And you can elevate without struggle. Yes. It's, it, you know, in the deepest, darkest depths is often where we find a kernel. And so, you know, I, I, sometimes I feel that in our culture, we tend to use medications a lot. Mm-hmm. Okay, and very easily, and of course, the companies benefit from that. But sometimes you have to try, in the, that alchemic way, without the medications, to struggle. It's not easy. Being in struggle is surrendering to a dark place. Mm-hmm. It, that's all it is. Yeah, and it gives meaning to frustration because we we've, we've lost it. Ability to tolerate frustration and then life. I tell my kids that all the time. Life is so full of frustrations. Yes. And, and if you see it as part of life and you're, you're struggling, is a noble thing. It's, it's a, a no- good it thing. Is. It, is a, it is a human endeavor. It's built into our name. So remember, we have three names, right? The first name we have is Jesus Ivory. What's mm-hmm. an Ivory? One who crosses borders. Mm-hmm. We go from a hard place, we move into a place, even if we're fearful, we have to take risks. Yehudim, gratitude. So we're people who are grateful. We're grateful for those opportunities to take the crossover. And then we're Yisrael, right? We are, we are God strugglers, we're strugglers with men, and we're strugglers with ourselves. So we have three names that reflect important values in Judaism. And you know, it's... Uh, gratitude for the ability and the freedom to yeah. struggle yes. is itself the yes. deep, deep, deep gratitude. It's a gift. Yes. It's a gift. I'm, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm <laughs> grateful that I'm able to yeah. struggle. Yeah. Yeah. The slaves couldn't do that. I think that they were so suppressed and pushed down. And when they get out in the desert, 
they start struggling. They complain about all kinds of things, you know, whether it's food or it's water. How or... ironic. Isn't that ironic? How ironic when they were in, in slavery, <laughs> they had the comfort of predictability. Yes. <laughs> and all of a sudden, you know, they now you have the discomfort of yeah. the unknown. Yeah. And you know what I love is uh, uh, Rabbi Jonathan Sachs says that once they had a project, their kvetching stopped. It's so interesting. I mean, I love that, that piece that I learned from him. When they started building the Mishkan, they weren't complaining. Mm-hmm. It's when they weren't doing it so much. <laughs> but they had the freedom to do it. They had the freedom to complain to Moshe, which was not pleasant for him. Uh, but they did have the freedom, as you're tapping into. You know, struggle itself is a gift, and it's often in the darkest, deepest struggles that we elevate and come into light, that we discover opportunities. Uh, you know, I wouldn't be a rabbi if my husband hadn't become ill. Hmm. That's just, I, I believe that. His illness and that reality tapped into something I had to confront. Mm-hmm. Who am I going to be now? And I made a choice. I could have hired a rabbi to work with me, but I said, no, that's not what I want. Mm-hmm. So I, I took you know, what was in an opportunity out of difficulty. And that's part of what I hope inspires people in reading my memoir, that we need to find opportunity in difficulty. Well, on that note, (laughs) I want to remind our readers, the book is called Spiritual Surgery, A Journey of Healing Mind, Body, and Spirit by Eva Robbins, Rabbi Cantor, and artist. You can get it on Amazon. And your website is? ExpandedSpirit.org. ExpandedSpirit.org. Eve, God bless you. Thank Thank you you so much for coming in. Thank you for the gift of this opportunity and getting to talk to you and meet you. And we can transition into a beautiful Shabbat. Yes. Shabbat Shalom. When I see the candles tonight, they'll have different meaning for me. Yes. Say that to your husband. I will tell Two him. Two gateways. Yes, thank you. Shabbat Shalom Shabbat Shalom. This episode is sponsored by Yeshiva University's Wurzweiler School of Social Work. Please visit them at wurz.yu.ed. Thank you.